that uh, the author, that specifically God has spoken to or about uh, in the early part of chapter 5, we saw, first of all, a warning to the weak. The latter part of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6. And then we also saw the beginning of uh, chapter number, oh, let me back up, chapter number uh, 6, in the, up to verse 8, we saw a warning to the wicked. And uh, we finished that up and a little bit of a difficult passage, but a powerful passage all at the same time. And so we looked at that last time. And now we get to look at the final group. Let's look at verse 9. Let's go ahead and read verse 9 of chapter 6 all the way down through verse number 12. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. That ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, great passage. Now, let me ask you this. Reading it, understanding it, look at verse 9 specifically. To whom is the section addressed? Well, you see right away, it's the word beloved. The term that we see throughout scriptures, scattered throughout the passages and the epistles, a term used for believers, you and I. The church specifically, and the Christ church. Now here, as it is then inserted into verse number 9, it denotes a notable change in the subject of the passage. We just got done talking about a group, a a group of apostasies, those who had rejected the word of God, the truth of God, though they had been close, what we described as the wicked. Now the subject changed from them, and he says, now, beloved, verse number 9, let me turn that spotlight on you. But it's an encouraging spotlight. It's a positive spotlight. It is, a, it is an uplifting message that we see here in these verses. And so um, these apostates had been exposed to the truth. They had been so very close, yet, yet they had not embraced the salvation that had been presented them in Jesus Christ. But this next group, and really to whom he is writing the epistle of Hebrews, Hebrew Christians, now he says a little bit of word to them, okay? What is that? Well, we call this a warning or a word to the wise. So we've seen a warning to the weak, a warning to the wicked, and now a warning, and I, most of this is a word to the wise, a word of encouragement and challenge, right? Right away, maybe you caught it, verse number nine, you know what we see here? I like this because the author, and I believe that to be Paul, takes a moment and he shares a little praise with them. He praises them. He commends them. He says to them, well done, good job. And uh, it very much is a passage in which as he addresses the Hebrew Christians, the reader here, he says there's some things that you are doing, you have done, that are praiseworthy. I like to describe it this way. It's a pat on the back. Good job. Well done. Appreciate you doing that. Well done. It's, it's that kind of thing. And you're doing a good job. Keep it up. And uh, many of you, you have children, you have grandchildren, you have others. Maybe even you have some adults that work for you. And praise is good. It's comely. It's, it's something that helps and encourages them. And we see that taking place here. An encouragement for a job well done. He speaks of several things in these first couple of verses concerning these saints that he says, here's the things that I want to praise and commend you for, okay? So in light of that, let's look back at the passage real quick. Look at verse 9. Let's pick up on some things that he says, okay, I want to praise you for these things. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak, okay? So let's just dissect the verse a little bit. First of all, what is he saying? Well, he's saying this. There are some things about you that I perceive. In fact, there's some fruit that is perceivable. 
Okay? When we say it's perceivable, he can note it. He, he has seen it in their living, their lifestyle, how they've conducted themselves. He's saying, there's some fruit that I've noticed about you. There are some things that have been produced in your life, and he would say this, there are fruit in their lives that is clearly discerned. It is obvious. It's clear to the beholder. And this fruit is good. Certainly, as I believe it to you, Paul, whoever the author might be here in Hebrews, he would know well that even Christ encouraged us to be fruit inspectors on some level, to some degree. It's interesting, the Bible makes a truth and principle very clear throughout its pages. If you were to do a minor study on, okay, what is the New Testament specifically, but certainly it's, it's uphold or upheld in the Old Testament too, if not also taught, is the truth and principle that God says there are fruit, and fruit distinguishes between one thing and another. One of them, in Matthew chapter 7, is the first passage many of us think, uh, think about, because the beginning of Matthew 7 is where everybody loves to quote, judge not lest you be judged. And uh, in that passage, what are we told? Well, there is fruit that discerns for us between a true prophet teacher and a false prophet or teacher. Okay? So uh, there's fruit that is easily recognizable, perceivable, that demonstrates the difference between a false teacher and a true teacher. So that's one of the areas in which God's Word says you can see that. Also throughout Scriptures, you know what else is a perceivable fruit? The difference between faith and unbelief. Faith and unbelief. There's always perceivable fruit that, uh, uh, that attends to or goes along with faith. Okay? Hebrews chapter 11 is a great illustration of that here in the book, the, the book we're studying. right? Hebrews chapter 11 demonstrates by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And there's fruit listed after all of those introductions to those verses. The obedience, the steps of faith they took. Unbelief is the same way. What I could ask you right now. Okay? And my third grade teacher used to say, put on your thinking cap, right? And uh, put on your thinking cap. Think immediately. What is the Old Testament example, a fruit of somebody demonstrating unbelief? Well, immediately the Israelites not taking the, the promised land at the beginning, right? Immediately. They, they, they did not take it. They did not accept it. And uh, they, no, we can't do that. And there, that was fruit of their unbelief. Later on in scriptures in the New Testament, we also see Paul makes a clear delineation, a separation of the fruit of those who are flesh-driven, flesh-led, and what would be the other, the opposite of flesh? Spirit-driven, spirit-led Christians. Be filled with the Spirit, be controlled, be led by the Holy Spirit. And he says, we'll see in a passage a little bit later on, Galatians chapter 5 and other passages, there's obvious fruit to those who are being driven and led of their flesh and those who are being driven and led of the Spirit. Likewise, from Christ's own teachings throughout the New Testament epistles, we also see that there is a perceivable fruit difference in salvation in the unsaved. In worldly living versus godly, holy living. All throughout the scriptures, we see that that is presented to you and I. So Paul is saying here, they are producing fruit that leads him to a conclusion and a judgment. We'll get to it in a moment, and we'll see in this verse what his conclusion about their fruit is. But the first point we need to understand is there is always fruit that is perceivable. There's always fruit that presents itself for us to recognize and perceive by which a judgment or a conclusion can be made. And that's what Paul says here. That's what the author says here. Listen, I know better things of you. We'll talk about that statement in a minute. Than what I've just described. Why? Because I can see your fruit. 
I can see how you're living your lives, the decisions you're making, what you're doing with your time, what you're doing with all that God has entrusted you. I can judge your fruit. Now, the reality is that you and I ought to likewise perceive fruit. We ought to arrive at conclusions concerning certain things. But we also, there's also a, uh, a warning in scriptures that you and I understand it's a fine line. We don't want to cross that line and become Pharisees who constantly judge people according to our own list of do's and don'ts, our own standards and practices. But yet we want to employ discernment in recognizing and perceiving biblical fruit. Because the Bible makes a simple truth. That flows throughout its pages, specifically and most poignantly in the New Testament. What is that? Well, fruit tells you what and where someone is spiritually. How can Paul, the author of Hebrews, make a differentiation between the wicked and those here who he, we call wise? Because he sees the fruit. The fruit is revealing in someone's life as to where they are spiritually and what they are spiritually. What are they facing? What are they going through? What's happening uh, here uh, in their lives? Where are they in position of spiritual maturity and so forth? Okay. Uh, In other words, he's saying to them, don't miss it, your fruit is saying good things about you. Your perceivable fruit is saying good things about you. And that, honestly, ought to challenge you and I tonight, is my fruit saying good things about me? If someone were to write me a letter after uh, rubbing shoulders with me, observing my life for weeks, maybe months on end, maybe they're describing 2022. Great passage for you and I to study as we embark on 2023 here. If they were writing a letter describing their interactions with you this past year, could they write the same thing as Paul here? says here to the the Hebrew Christians, your fruit is saying good things about you. What you committed, what you did, the decisions you made, how you lived your life, your fruit is perceivable, it can be seen, it's recognizable, and it is saying this about you. It's saying good things about you and I. So that's really where the author is saying here about the beloved. But he also prescribes the fruit in a different way. And again, we're dissecting this verse quite in-depthly. Number two, notice what else he says about this fruit. Okay? This perceivable fruit is persuasive. It's persuading him of something. What does he say it's persuading him of in the passage? He says better things. Better things than uh, the group he just spoke of. And I like what he said there, though we thus speak. Though I've just said some hard things about apostates, those who have been close to the, the truth and the truths of salvation, the revelation, and yet they've walked away from it before accepting and embracing themselves. I have better things to say of you than what I just wrote of. I love that statement. He's saying your fruit is not a flash in the pan. It's not unclear that, well, there's some good, there's some bad fruit. He's not saying that. He's saying there's no let's wait and see attitude. No, rather their fruit has has proven something. They've They've proven something. There's evidence of their fruit. It speaks for itself. It's persuasive. There's no wondering where do they stand. Are they a a full-time follower of Jesus Christ? Are they a part-time follower of Jesus Christ? Or are they a convenient follower of Jesus Christ? When it's convenient, when they have time, we would call it a hobby Christian. He's saying, I don't have to wonder about that. The fruit is obvious. It speaks to the reality of what you are and where you are. You see, the very fruit and actions they have produced is making a statement as to where they stand in Christ. And the statement is loud and clear. You're not going to miss it. 
It encourages us to ensure that we are producing genuine fruit and that it likewise be persuasive to who we truly are in Christ. Let me ask you this. Does the fruit you produce persuade others that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Is the fruit that you produce the perceivable fruit, not the hidden fruit, Okay, I, I hope you had your Bible devotions today. I love the beginning of the new you. It's a year. It's kind of a, a chance to start anew, maybe start a new plan and so forth. I, I love that aspect about the new year. You can kind of start a new plan, a new way to read through the Bible or a new section, whatever the case may be. Okay? And, uh, but, but that's not really perceivable other than the fruit that it will eventually produce, God's word in you. Certainly it will not return void. But the reality is, how about your prayer time? Now, people don't see you in your prayer closet, so necessarily that for Now, they may see you pray at work when you have lunch break. They may see you pray at other times in a restaurant and things like that. That's perceivable. But there's much about our Christian walk and our Christian life that is not perceivable. But there's also much that is perceivable. How you talk, how you speak, what you say, what you don't say, how you act at work, how you treat other people, how you respond to authority in your life, how you don't respond to authority in your life. All those things are fruit that are perceivable. Let me ask you this. What does your fruit persuade other people about you? What are they persuaded of? Paul writes a powerful statement. I, I am persuaded. <laughs> in better things of you. Wouldn't it be wonderful if those around us are persuaded of better things of us that we're followers of Jesus Christ? That we stand in Christ. That we are saved followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of his. And I, I love the challenge we see here, okay? The per, it's perceivable fruit. It's perceivable fruit that is persuasive. Number three, if you'll see it on our outline here, this persu- uh, perceivable fruit is persuasive of their position in Christ. You'll already notice I like the letter P, Amen. Okay, so this perceivable fruit is persuasive of what? They're a good person? Well, I don't know about you. I, I want people to think more of me than just being a good person. I want them to think of me as a godly person, follower of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of good people. In fact, I was talking to uh, Brother Rick Loga, and uh, uh, he, he had an aunt that passed away, and, and uh, she's a good person. Man, very good. One of the nicest people you'd ever meet. Good people. But she never wanted to have anything to do with Jesus Christ. How sad, huh? Like her funeral was today. That's sad. I I want to be more than a good person. I want to be a godly person. Someone that has a relationship with God and then yearns and desires and strives to be like, not perfect. Striving for it, but not perfect. Striving for it. Yearning for it. Desiring it. Pursuing it. Uh, that the world doesn't need good people, needs godly people. Needs to see it, needs to experience it, rub shoulders with godly people, followers and disciples of Jesus Christ that show that, that persuade of their position in Christ. He narrows down. We talked a moment ago how there's fruit that separates the faith and unbelief, separates fleshly and worldly, separates false teacher and good teacher, true teacher, okay? Here he narrows it down for us. All right, Paul, you you say there's perceivable fruit in their lives. What is it saying? What is it persuading you of? And so he says that here. He says things that accompany what? What does he say? Starts with an S, ends with salvation. 
Salvation. Good. You got it. Okay. I like to do that. I've always done that. Sorry. Salvation. Okay. It just happens without my thing. Salvation, right? Things that accompany salvation. Here's the fruit. He says, listen, I can see immediately it's perceivable. It persuades me that you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I love this passage because you know what this verse does? It shows, and he says, your fruit gives evidence of the proof of their salvation. It's the very thing that the group before had missed out on. This is another reason, as I told you, there's some debate or discussion about those people discussed in verses 8 and, and prior, whether they're saved or unsaved, those who lost their salvation. I think this is another great verse that proves he's talking about those who had never had salvation. He says, I'm persuaded of better things of you. What are those better things? You have the fruit of salvation. Because you're saved. I see it in your life. I didn't see it in those people. They were close to it. They were nigh to it, but they, they rejected it. Another great proof, I believe, of that passage, further credence, that the idea of speaking to the unsaved in those prior verses. He's stating that he has a settled conviction that they are true believers. They're not apostates because of their fruit. He makes it clear that they're a perceivable fruit that attend to or evidence of salvation. Now, this is getting a lot of out there and <laughs> different teachings and things like that. Can I just make this clear? Because the Bible is crystal clear about this. Fruit will always accompany salvation. Fruit will always accompany salvation. Okay? It will always produce the evidential proof of fruit. In people's lives, when there's a changed life, once Christ has come in, the Holy Spirit indwells. We know that we are ordained to fruit and works. Paul wrote that to the church at Ephesus. He says, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. Let's any man should boast, but we have been before ordained that we should walk in what? Fruit, good works. Want to walk in it. There's evidential to it, okay? And I would just share with you here from scriptures what I call the threefold truth of salvation fruit. The threefold truth of salvation fruit. What is it? Real quick, letter A, the saved will produce fruit. More importantly, God's going to produce it through you. <laughs> if we abide in the vine, what do we, what do we bear? Much fruit. Much fruit. And much more fruit. Much more, more fruit. <laughs> As we abide in him, we walk with him, and so forth. So the saved will produce fruit. It's going to be a natural reaction to the seed of God's word. It produces fruit. Even the parables demonstrate that and so forth. Number two, though, we also understand it's not the same amount of fruit. Okay, there's not a, a threshold, okay? Down on the other end, our teenagers are filling out uh, sheets. Pastor Tony has them doing impact points. I did it when I was a youth pastor, and they would turn in sheets, and they'd reach certain things in order to go to a missions trip and things like that and so forth, okay? There, there is a constant, um, you've got to reach this for every Christian. Now, the reality is for you and I, we're all growing at different paces. We all produce fruit, but it may not be the same amount of fruit. It may not be as widespread in different areas, per se. Okay? It's not the same amount of fruit. Not everyone is expected. You don't have a quota. This year, you need to win 60 people to the Lord, or you're not a good Christian. God doesn't have that. That's not the fruit. There's no level of fruit. Now, here's reality. Ought we to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. Yes, we are. We're supposed to tell people about Jesus Christ. Hey, <laughs> What did Paul say? Uh, some water, some plant, some reap. God that gives the increase. 
Okay, so there are things we all we all have fruit to produce. Okay, but there'll be some in our midst here who lead one person to the Lord, some who lead five, some who lead ten, and so forth. We'll all produce fruit. We're supposed to, but it is not the same amount. Now, however, what we just described is also true. Let her see about salvation fruit. It is the same kind of fruit. There are some in the world today and some in false denominations who say, hey, listen to me, I'm going to speak in tongues, and that is proof or fruit of my salvation. Something that the Bible does not say anywhere is a proof or evidence of salvation, a fruit. There are many things that some people try to point to. Well, this is the fruit of my salvation. Can I just tell you this? You and I, and Paul says it well, I believe it's Ephesians, you and I have the same spirit. The fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of salvation does not change as we go from one believer to another. It's the same kind of fruit. Much the same way as nature would teach us. Does, do apple trees produce oranges? If not, if, if they do in your yard, I'd like to come for a visit. That doesn't happen. Apple trees produce apples. Same for you and I as Christians. We are to produce the fruit. What does Paul say? Well, there's some fruit that I can see that accompanies what? Salvation. It's an obvious and clear fruit that God has produced in our lives as we yield to him, as we strive uh, to work with him, that he would produce the fruit. It's evidential or proof that one is a child of God. Remember what Christ said in Matthew chapter 7? Certainly he's talking about false prophets and such in Matthew chapter 7. But there's principles, universal principles that God gives us. One of them is verse 17. He says this, even so every good tree bringeth forth what kind of fruit? Every good tree bringeth forth Good fruit, right? So there's universal principles. Listen, if you're this, you're going to bring forth this. If you're saved, you're going to bring forth fruit that accompanies salvation, Paul says. And when he's talking to these believers in Hebrews, he says, listen, I am persuaded of better things of you. Not of an apostate. You're not bringing forth the fruit of an apostate. You're bringing forth the fruit of a saved person. Perceivable, persuasive fruit that bespeaks one's position in Jesus Christ. Paul puts that out here. He would write to the believers in Galatia. He says there's a clear and obvious fruit of Christian in character and conduct after salvation when compared to the, the fruits or the works of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5 is a great passage. He's speaking to those who are promoting the law, being saved by the law. And he says, listen, when you and I are saved in Jesus Christ, yeah, those works of the flesh that we used to walk in, those fruit of the flesh we used to produce, they're gone. We come to being part of the family of God. The Spirit indwells us, and we yield to the Holy Spirit. Then we have joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. Just be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a difference of fruit. And the fruit bespeaks our position in Christ. Paul says, I see it in you. I'm persuaded it's in your life. And what you're doing and how you're living and how you're conducting yourself. So it begs the question. So what was the fruit you saw? As he watched the lives of these believers and he interacted with them in their churches and with their meeting places. What was the, what was the fruit that he saw and recognized in their lives? Look at verse 10. He tells us. Notice it. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Great passage, okay? So let's add another P to our statement, shall we? Okay? This is what it says. Number four, okay? This perceivable, persuasive fruit of their position, that's in Christ, it profited 
Christ's church. We could also throw in there God's kingdom. Okay? It profited. There was an obvious profit to it, an obvious demonstration of it. He lists for us a great list of praiseworthy actions. What did they do? Well, he lists it for us, right? They worked. They labored. They ministered in the past to Christ's church. They also were ministering in the present. And all of that was rooted, moved, motivated by an obvious love for God and God's family. We would say there is a perceivable demonstration of ministry to the local church and to fellow believers. They had worked and labored likewise for the kingdom of God, for their Lord. They had labored for him and worked for his kingdom to establish it and to enlarge it, even as they ministered to fellow saints. These are some of the things that accompany salvation. If we were to make a list of fruit that accompanies salvation, Paul has already started the list for us. But when you belong to the family of God, you want to minister to the family of God. There's a desire within you, and the Holy Spirit draws you to those who are uh, of like faith, as we would say. Okay? What we sing after communion, blessed be the tie that binds. That binds our heart in Christian love. Paul's speaking, boy, when you're saved, you're drawn to the gathering together of God's house, of God's people. You want to be with the family when it gets together. This past holiday, there's many people who want to gather together with their family. They yearned to, they loved to, they enjoyed it. Paul says, listen, you minister to one another, and that's an obvious fruit of your salvation. Boy, when someone doesn't want to gather with the church, when someone wants to have anything to do with other Christians, and yet they try to claim to be a Christian, that's a, that's a concerning aspect of their life. They don't want to be together. The Spirit draws. How many of us have said, man, it's so good to come out of the world, the people who are not living for God, and to come to be around fellow saints and believers who have and serve one Lord, one God, one faith, Paul said. What a joy it is to gather together, minister to one another in different ways, and exhortment, encouragement, and edification. What a blessing that is. And he noticed it in their lives. He said, that's present with you. I can see it. It's, it's there. He commends them for it. They were obvious. It was obvious in their lives. And so the author, Paul here, more importantly, God, commends them for these things. We could go on that list. And the work, the labor. You, know, you don't labor for yourself. You labor for your Lord. You work for him. You serve him in ways. And you pray for opportunities and doors open to serve your God. He commends them for that. However, before we quickly move on to the same theme and idea, we don't want to skip over that little first part of verse 10. Notice it with me, if you will. uh, The more I study this passage, the more it jumps out at me. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, your ministering to the church. Okay, Number one, he took a moment to praise them. That perceivable, persuasive fruit of their position in Christ, the prophet of the church. Okay, So he took a moment to praise them. Number two, he takes a moment to remind them of God's promise. Of God's promise. He takes a moment to remind them of God's promise. What was that? Well, let me ask you this. One of the things, or not ask you this, I'll ask you a question in a second, but let me make the statement first. The righteousness, the righteousness of God makes him a great God. The righteousness of God makes him a great God. 
what do I mean by that? Well, he's perfect, he's holy, he's just, and he's righteous. What does a righteous person do? If you were to read a completely righteous person, what does a righteous person do? Well, a righteous person always do, does the right thing. They're righteous. They're not going to do the wrong thing. They're not going to err. They're, they're not going to do something that's unkind, unfair, unjust. They're always going to do the right thing. You know what Paul's saying here? We serve a righteous God. And because he is righteous, he will always do the right thing. I love this statement. It's kind of just thrown in here. And he's, he's kind of logically kind of, kind of going back with them, trying to plead with them. says, listen, you're God. You're God who is righteous will do the right thing. What's the right thing in context? He will not forget your work and labor of love. I love that. He's not going to overlook it. He's not going to say, oh, I missed that. Oh, they did that. Oh, they served me in that way. Oh, I didn't realize. No, no, no. Or, yeah, oh, that seems right. You know, oh, yeah, I forgot about them doing that, serving. No, God will not forget. I like how Paul puts this on the level of righteousness, forgetting, okay? If forgetting something is unrighteous, I'm in trouble. Here, spiritually applied, it says, listen, you serve a righteous God. There ought to be great encouragement for you and I in this simple statement. Why? Because he says, I won't forget it. What you've done for me out of love, I won't forget it. You're ministering on my behalf in the past, in the present. I won't forget it. My friend, that ought to be a comforting promise. Why? Because many, many, many are the works and labors of love of God's people that are barely, if not at all, recognized by others. I would compare it very much to the idea of an iceberg. 10% above the surface, you can see, and you see 90% of its mass is below the surface, unseen, unrecognized. The majority of the labor and work of God's children is unnoticed. It is unpraised, humanly speaking. But God never forgets. God never forgets. You may not be praised. You may not be patted on the back for being an usher, for working in the nursery, for cleaning up a piece of paper in God's auditorium. You may not be noticed or recognized for singing a song, doing something, ministering in some way across this place for your God. But my friend, when you do it in love, God will not forget. And I tell you, we serve a great God, a righteous God, who is a good God. He will not forget. There are qualifications here, and I love it that Paul says about it. You want to receive that promise. You want to be the recipient of that truth. Here's the context. Number one, it's works and labors, works and labors consistent with a changed life. A changed life. A saved life, one who has a relationship. Let me ask you this. Are there people who come to God at the end of time before, hey, we cast out demons in your name. What does God say to them? Depart from me, for I never knew you. Never knew you. We never had a relationship. You were never changed. You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is a requirement. Because they're going to be like, God, did you forget? Did you forget that I, I, I cast out demons in your name? And certainly God knew they did, but he was never one, they were never one of his. So this promise there is of no effect. They've missed out on the most important thing. I need to make sure that he is my God. So then in turn, I can truly serve him in love. That's a qualification. 
another qualification, and this is sometimes where we as Christians, we, we can kind of slip up. It must be the right work. What do we mean by that? Well, it's sometimes easy for us, don't miss it, to do a good work that is not the right work. Did you catch it? See, sometimes it's easy for us to do the good work that is not the right work. In other words, God has not called us to it. I call it the Martha syndrome, right? The Martha syndrome. So busy working and doing stuff, he says, well, you've forgotten the needful thing, the most important thing, the right thing for the moment, Martha. You see, for a work to be right, the right work, the work must be God's will. I know many people, now don't, mis- don't misunderstand me, but get a hold of it. I have known many a Christian in my 40-plus years, know many a Christian, I mean this, listen to me, I've grown up in church. I've known many a person that has tried to determine themselves what is God's will for them. And they have gone about and they have tried to do some good things, but it was not the right thing. Why must you and I stay in constant communication with our God, reading his word in prayer? Because, my friend, I just don't want to do good things. I want to do God's will. And Paul was speaking of this. He says, listen, this is, this is important. And he's commending them because you have done God's will. You have done the good thing. Be careful. Make sure it's the right thing. What he wants us to do, what he calls us to do. And then, as he makes crystal clear here, what the motive needs to be right. The motive for doing it. I love what he says, your labor and work of love. And you have shown it unto what? My name. You've done it for me. My glory, not your own glory. Not to, not to get the pat on the back. Not to be the one whose name is uplifted and, and glorified. No, no, you've done it for my name. I love that statement. Because it's easy to do some good works for your personal pat on the back. And what does God's word say? They have their reward yeah they have their reward they've gotten it what you've done the reason you've done it the motive has eliminated you from the promise that god will not forget you've already have your reward when you do it for love of self when you do it for the love of anything else instead of love for god and his people and see these are the qualifiers that paul identifies in this verse and certainly are confirmed throughout the scriptures it must be the product of a changed life. It must be the right work is determined by God's will. And it must be motivated by your love for God and the furtherance of his kingdom and the exaltation of his name, not yours. When done as such, it is commendable work and labor. That which will not be forgotten. Here's the word to the wise. The encouragement. We have many servants at Fostoria Baptist Church. I look out here on a Wednesday night and you all serve in different ways and praise the Lord for that. And all I can tell you, though I may miss it, other people may miss it, your work and labor of love will not be forgotten. This is his church. It is his kingdom. It is his work. And though we may not pat you on the back, we may not praise you from the pulpit, there's a God in heaven who does not forget everything you do for him. What a great encouragement tonight. And my friend, the reality is, as he promised that to them, as he commended them for it, I commend you for it likewise. But let's make sure that everything we do is for the right reasons. Make sure everything we do is the right thing in that moment. 
and that it's according to God's will. Let me continue, shall we? It says this word to the wise. He, he, he took a moment to praise them. He took a moment to remind them of God's promise, last but not least. He, he took a moment to preach to them. No surprise, being Paul. <laughs> it's not time to rest, he says. They, they've done well, but there's more to do. It's not time to relax. It's time to push forward. Here is what we see. Look at verse 11 again. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence through the full assurance of hope unto the end. Okay? Number one, notice it if you will. We see a communicated desire. A communicated desire. I love how the author uses the pronouns here. He says and communicates, we desire. A term indicating that both he and God are in agreement. Here's the heart of your great God, your great shepherd, and also the heart of the under shepherd, the human shepherd. Did you catch also what it's a desire for? For every one of you. It's a desire of God that no believer is exempt from. Every one of us are the object of this desire of God. There are many things that as a father I want for my children. I desire for them. As they grow older, as they go through different stages of life, and as they become, I hope, better uh, adult than I am, better Christian than I am, and and a better father, better husband, there's much that I desire for my children. You as a parent, you as a grandparent, you desire much for your children. I just tell you, your heavenly fire, Father desires much for you. There's much he desires. There's much that he wants for you. And in that desire, he, he challenges us that there are things that have blessings and rewards both now and for eternity that he desires for you. So what's the desire here? The desire first begins with that they would not rest with past achievements. That they would not rest upon past achievements. He's commended them. He's praised them. We've seen that. You've done a great job. Your fruit is evident. It's persuasive. It's perceivable of your position in Christ. It's profitable for the church. Well done. You've done a good job as we described it as a moment ago. But he says don't rest on that. I'll challenge you. 2022 is over. Praise the Lord for what's been accomplished. But 2023 it has great potential. There's more to do. You are not all that you ought to be as a Christian. You're not all you should be. None of us have arrived. We have not already attained, Paul said. But we press toward the mark. Don't rest on the past. Oh, that's wonderful. We rejoice in it. But as we start a new year, he has a desire for us. And every time we read in the scriptures, we see that God desires something for us. We ought to say, what is it? What does he want? Well, first of all, don't rest on our past achievements. Number two, there is a call to diligently develop. Diligently develop. He says it here, desire that every one of you show the same diligence. The same diligence in developing. Here's the desired action on the part of every person. Not just don't rest on the capacity college, just press forward. Press towards that mark. Specifically, press towards maturity and the complete enjoyment of the inheritance you have in Jesus Christ. If you glance ahead at verse 12, he talks about the inheritance that we have. He wants you to fully enjoy everything you have at your hands because of your position in Christ, your relationship with him. Repeat the same diligence you have already shown in the past. Don't let it falter. Don't let it fade. Keep producing the fruit that bespeaks the great salvation you possess. Continue to develop and grow in maturation as a Christian. And what he alludes to here is that there is a great 
byproduct of diligent development. A great byproduct. What is it? Well, he mentions here an assurance of hope. (laughs) Assurance of hope. In other words, our confidence, our assurance, our hope in what we have in Christ now and at the end only becomes stronger. So be diligent. Develop yourself as a believer. Grow in faith. Increase your faith. Nurture your walk and relationship with the Lord. Don't rest in the past. Be diligent. You've done a great job. Well done. He commends them, but there's more to do. More growth, more development in you and I as believers, no matter our physical age. We have not reached full spiritual maturity. So push forward. Encouragement to build our faith, grow our faith, increase our faith. How does that work? Let's remind ourselves of what we've seen in other passages. When we talk about growing our faith, it means we exercise our faith like a muscle. There are no doubt, somewhere in the world, people who have made New Year's resolutions about getting stronger, getting in shape, building muscles. What a great resolution or resolve. I like that statement better as the song, I am resolved. Resolve to exercise our faith. How do we exercise our faith? Well, this verse alludes to what we see in other passages. I exercise my faith. I, I build my confidence, my assurance, my faith, my hope through being diligent in my development as a believer. Exercise my faith. Use it. Show faith. Walk by faith. Give diligence to exercising your faith in the works and labor of love. He's all already mentioned. Like you have in the past, don't quit. Continue to develop your faith. It's as if God is saying in this passage, well done. Now keep going on. Keep pressing on to the end. Don't stop now. Don't throw in the proverbial towel. Keep going on. But there's a warning here, and we end with it. There's an impediment. There's an obstacle to their diligent development uh, that that our adversary would love to uh, throw in in our midst if we don't diligently deny it. Look at verse number 12, William. We're done. That ye be not, what's the next word? Okay, don't be slow in saying the word, okay? Some of you caught that. That ye be not what? Slothful. That ye be not slothful. Okay, notice it, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. See the statement here? Okay, number three, it's a long statement, forgive me, but uh, I'm going to get on. He (laughs) commends to us, recommends to us, the denial of contentment in development. First and foremost, he, in this verse 12, he, he recommends to us, commends to us the denialment or the do, denial, excuse me, of contentment. He goes on, you see the statement there, and continued discipleship. We'll talk about that in a moment, but let's focus on this first part. Don't be slothful. Because you know what he's saying? Many other places in the scripture and in our lives as a believer, God preaches to us to make sure we are content. There's really <laughs> the most important area of life that he says, I don't want you to content, be content in is what? Spiritual development. Don't be content with where you are as a Christian. Don't be, don't be a bump on a log. Don't be lazy. Don't be slothful when it comes to your spiritual contentment. He desires that you and I never are content in the development of our faith and our walk. He does not want you the same beginning of 2023 as you will be at the end of 2023. In your development as a Christian, your faith, your walk with the Lord, he doesn't want you and I to be content. 
He knows that the devil, and especially our old flesh, I think is pictured here, they're working hard to stop us, to cause us to digress spiritually, to not be diligently developing our spiritual maturity. He knows it's too easy to become slothful. What does it mean to be spiritually slothful? Boy, if you get nothing else, get this tonight. You know what it means to be spiritually slothful? Here it is, a statement on your outline. To be spiritually slothful is to be content with what you have done and where you are to the extent you neglect where you need to be. That's spiritual slothfulness. And that's exactly what our flesh wants and Satan wants, that you and I, man, you know, I've been a Christian for 40 plus years, and man, I, I think I'm good. I think I'm all right. I don't, I, my faith is pretty strong. I'm pretty good Christian. And well, Be slothful. To be content with where, uh, what I have done, where I am right now, to the extent we forget or neglect where I ought to be. Till we all come into the likeness of who? Jesus Christ. Now I'll tell you, this morning I looked in two mirrors. The first one was a physical mirror. And I found out my hair after sleeping on it was going many different directions. I need to wash my face and do some other things. This morning I looked into a different mirror. And I found out there's still some things spiritually that need to be fixed. That maybe not all they should be, not all they ought to be. And so I need to grow and I need to improve on that today and tomorrow and this year. The slothful Christians say, oh, that's nice, and walk away. Now, can I admit, sometimes during the, the Christmas day, the Christmas break, excuse me, a couple days that I had off, I looked in the, in my, the mirror and the hair was going everywhere. You know what I did? I threw on a ball cap. Easy way to cover that up. Not address it, not take care of it. You know, spiritually, sometimes I can get lazy, I can get slothful, and I can read of something in the mirror of God's Word that I need to fix, and I can throw on a ball cap. Kind of ignore it, kind of neglect it, and be slothful. Don't be slothful. And then he gives an added addition. He says, I want you to be a disciple. I want you to follow others. See it? Call it a continued discipleship. Be followers of those who have demonstrated their faithfulness and patience. That's what he says in verse 12. They've realized the fulfilled promises of God. And I, I think of 12 plus years here at FBC and all the saints that have gone on before us. Others who have walked this path and prepared the way in different ways for you and I. And there's many that we can follow their example to walk in their footsteps. There are those in the scriptures. Those are those who are in our family and others who have been spiritual mentors for us. Those who have been faithful and diligent, as is read here in the passage. We are called to follow their example. Be imitators. The word literally here means to be imitators of them. Uh, to be disciples of them as they are disciples of Christ. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so we are to note those people. And he says, follow them. Followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I don't know about you. I want to inherit the promises. I want those promises, the promises in this passage and many others. So the exhortation, the last thing on your outline, and we can be done, is this. Follow on. Follow. Follow in their footsteps. Follow the example of godly people who have in living faith and diligent patience received God's promises, and you and I can do likewise, receive the same. So follow on tonight. Great passage, great encouragement. I hope you'll now take it with us and live it out.